Foundations and building. During the early part of the summer, the school car park was all cordoned off so that work could commence on their new building. And for quite a few weeks, we watched and saw, well, apparently quite little going on, really. The ground was cleared. All trace of the old tennis courts was gone. And then, well, for a few weeks, it seemed that not an awful lot was happening, really. And then, during Holiday Bible Club Week... And within the space of that one week, that structure that you see was erected. And we watched fascinated as the crane was lifting all of those units one by one into their place. Of course, the reality is that you cannot just plonk a building on a bare piece of ground like that. That building needs something solid to rest on, it needs electricity. It needs a water supply. It needs drainage. And all on a very firm base. And of course, during that time when seemingly nothing was being done, actually, a very great deal was being done. Everything was being prepared and made ready. But all of the preparations were at ground level or beneath the ground. So it seemed like they were doing, well, what are they doing? Actually, they were doing a great deal. Foundations were being laid. Everything was being prepared. And it was because of what was being done during those weeks where there seemed to be nothing to show for it that they were then able to put up that building in just five days. The groundwork matters as any good builder will tell you. And that's where the people are in Jerusalem as the rebuilding of the temple gets underway. And so let's look at this passage under three headings. First of all, construction commences at verse 7 and into verse 8. It's been several months now since the people returned to Judah and Jerusalem. Back in the opening verse of chapter 3, we're introduced to it being the seventh month of the year. And now we're told that it's the second month of the following year. So they've been there for a few months now. And verse 7 tells us that much has been done to secure the resources that they'll require. And those lavish gifts that they were given as they left Babylon, well, they've been using those uh, to fund their building project. And we see a very important principle spelled out in this chapter. You see, it's only once the spiritual life of Israel has been restored that they begin the work of restoring Jerusalem starting with the temple. But the really important thing was that their spiritual life was given priority. And their spiritual life was restored first. Then they get on with the work of building. And that's a significant order that is being laid out in the Bible and recorded here for us to see and take note of. You see, there's something that is more important to God than your doing. And that is your being. 
the things that you do are less important than the person that you are and the motives that are driving you. Your spiritual life and your character, are, are, they are of greater worth than the works of your hands. That is not an excuse not to work, nor is it to devalue work. But your work is always to be in accordance with your walk, your walk with God. And your work should actually flow out of your walk with God. You do everything, including your work, to his glory. That means that everything that's required for nourishing and edifying your walk with Christ, that needs to come first. Seeking first the kingdom of God, Jesus called it. And never replace worship with work. There was a grave danger, you see, when they arrived in Jerusalem, that all they had in mind was, right, we've got to build, build, build. We've got to work, work, work. Let's get our hands dirty. Let's, let's crack on with things. Let's get this done. But no. Worship must come first. Their spiritual life must come first. You must never replace worship with work. It's a principle that we find clearly spelled out. Indeed, it's a, it's a principle that's laid down at the earliest stage where God reveals his law to Moses. You find it in the Ten Commandments with the principle of the Sabbath day. You're to do all your work in six days. All your work is to be done in six days. The seventh is to be different and kept separate. Before you ask, some Christians work in caring and essential services and they have to take their turn in jobs that simply can't be abandoned because it's Sunday. Christian medical staff don't leave people to suffer just because it's Sunday. A Christian firefighter doesn't leave people to burn in their house just because it's Sunday. You don't leave your donkey stuck in a ditch, said Jesus, just because it's the Sabbath day. The Bible covers those arguments for us. Those issues are dealt with by the Bible for the people who try to ask what they think is a clever question. But your spiritual life and your spiritual state are to be the priority. And you don't make the choice of reversing that priority. That's the issue. With correct priorities established, with worship restored, now rebuilding may commence. And where God has said you should be worshipping, you don't replace worship with work. It's a very clear biblical principle. And if you're a Christian who abandons that principle, your Christian life will be poorer for it. I guarantee it. And the little bits of detail that were given in this passage actually are very helpful. 
Uh, how do we rebuild the temple? They surely have been asking at some point. Well, they've had several months on their journey from Babylon to Jerusalem to be thinking about it. I mentioned uh, the other week, we have all of those people mentioned in chapter 2 who are there, and all of the people being mentioned, it's all about the spiritual life of the people. And I mentioned the other week, well, why aren't the, the stonemasons and the carpenters mentioned? Well, well, they're mentioned now. They've been there all along, but they weren't mentioned then because that wasn't the priority. But now that it is time to start the rebuilding work, now uh, they are mentioned. They've all been there all the time. But now that it's the appropriate point to mention them, now they get a look in. And those who have those skills that are going to be required are amongst the, the Lord's people. And they'll be able to do the work of their hands now that the worship has been restored correctly. But probably they've nevertheless been saying, well, so what's involved in rebuilding Jerusalem? What's involved in rebuilding the temple? What must we do? Well, it seems that they look back into the Old Testament scriptures because there are many similarities here in Ezra 3 with what happened in the building of Solomon's temple. And if you look back, we're not going to do that, but if you want to make a note of it and look for yourself, if you check in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, you'll see some striking similarities with what happens there. The building work begins in the same month, for example. The timber comes from the same place. It comes from Lebanon in the north, and it arrives by sea at the port of Joppa. You know, it was Jaffa today. It's cedar. It's a very resilient wood. It's a wood that doesn't rot easily. And it was prized as a building material. It was used in Solomon's temple. It's going to be used in this temple. Once again, the Levites are appointed as overseers. Although back in 2 Chronicles, the, uh, the qualifying age for the Levites was 30 years old. But now they've dropped it to 20. Probably just a practical thing, because there aren't as many of them, because there are many fewer people in, the, in their number this time around. And they follow that which is laid down for them in the Bible. How are you building your life? What are you following? Where are you looking? We see here in Ezra chapter 3 that God has ensured that his people have all the resources that they need in order to build. And God freely and gracious, graciously grants that you will have all that you will ever need in order, in order to build your spiritual life. We saw in Ephesians on Wednesday that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God will provide you with every resource that you need in order to, to build and grow as a Christian believer. Establish yourself spiritually. And to know how to build, Ezra and the people clearly turn to the word of God. And that's where you'll learn how you should build your life. That's where you'll discover how you should build. And so you must take care to build as God would have you build. Because it's in the Bible if you'll take the time to look and find it there. Establish yourself spiritually. 
And where God has laid down instructions and patterns to follow, follow them. Where he warns you not to tread, don't go there. Don't invent your own path or go your own way. Take care how you begin to build and how you go on building. And then secondly, we see the people respond. The foundation's been laid. And there's great rejoicing in Jerusalem from verse 10. And again, there are similarities between this passage and back in 2 Chronicles, only this time in chapter 5 of 2 Chronicles. As the people there rejoice with trumpets and cymbals. And the words that they use in praise to God are almost the same as that which we read in Ezra. But there is one key difference between the two passages. Back in 2 Chronicles, where they're building Solomon's temple, the people are rejoicing at the completion of the whole temple. Whilst here in Ezra, it's only the foundation that's been laid. So that is a significant difference. And in Ezra, we're also surprised to find that some of the older men, the ones who are old enough to remember Solomon's temple before it was destroyed, they are weeping. And they're weeping just as loud as those who are rejoicing, so that it's difficult to discern one group from the other. Why are they crying? Why are they crying? Shouldn't they be delighted too? What's going on? Some suggest that they can see that this new temple won't be a patch on the old one. Maybe, but that's unlikely. If you, can, if you compare 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 2 with what's coming later in Ezra chapter 6, you'll see that in terms of size, actually there's not that much to choose between these two buildings. It's not that Solomon's temple was ten times bigger than this one and this is puny by comparison. That, that wasn't the issue. They can hardly be moaning about the lack of grandeur at the moment. After all, it's only the foundations that are down. So, yes, Solomon's temple was known for all its grandeur and splendour, but why would you think of comparing the current temple with that when it's still only at the foundation level? That really doesn't make much sense. But there are two things which really could explain the reason for their sorrow in the midst of all the rejoicing. What may they be? Well, here's two things. When Solomon's temple was completed... The culmination of the whole project was the installation of the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of the very presence of God amongst his people. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps it dawned upon these older men that all of this is going to be a waste of time. Why? Well, the Ark of the Covenant is no more. Who knows where it is? No one knows. It's gone. 
it's last mentioned at the end of 2 Chronicles in the days of King Josiah. And after Jerusalem is ransacked by Nebuchadnezzar, the whereabouts of the ark is lost forever. Indeed, Jeremiah records these words in chapter 3, Then it shall come to pass, when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will, see, they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. It's gone. When the first temple was completed, the ark was laid inside and the glory of God descended, filled the temple. Are these men weeping because they can see that the completion of this second temple is going to lack something so crucial? Perhaps that's so. Or maybe they're remembering that vision of that vast temple that Ezekiel had. Do you remember when we were looking in Ezekiel, that vision he had of that vast, vast temple, far bigger and greater and grander, grander than Solomon's temple ever was? It was the temple of temples. It was glorious in its size and in its appearance. Oh dear. This temple can't possibly be the temple that Ezekiel told us about. Can't possibly be it. And maybe that's why they're weeping. That great prophecy that Ezekiel gave us, this certainly isn't the fulfillment of it. And so we have this rather strange cacophony at the end of verse 13, a loud shout of both weeping and rejoicing. Well, what are we to make of all this today? Let me explain. Here's our third and final point. The true foundation laid. You see, these verses are about the laying of a foundation. And it is significant that even at the laying of the foundation, the people pause to rejoice. Here are foundations being laid, ready to be built upon. God has made a covenant with his people. And these Old Testament temples, these Old Testament physical representations in the material world, are pointing to something far greater that is to come in the spiritual world. They're pictures pointing to something far greater that's coming. As in Ezekiel's vision, there is a far greater temple to come. It wasn't Solomon's, and it won't be this one, but it's coming. There's another foundation coming, and there's an even greater temple which God will build. But it's not a temple made with human hands. Listen to Paul when he writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. 
According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's another foundation that's been laid. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he's built on it endures, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. The temple of God is holy, which temple you are. All of these things in the Old Testament, they're all pictures pointing to the real thing that's coming in Christ and which will be established and fulfilled in Christ. He writes to the Ephesians, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This is the temple that God is concerned about. This is the temple that God is building. This is the foundation that God has laid. We discover through the apostles that all of this Old Testament imagery of foundations and temple building pictures for us a spiritual reality which is all revealed and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. The foundation's been laid and the foundation is complete and the foundation is Christ. This is cause for the greatest rejoicing, isn't it? That's why they rejoiced when the foundation was laid. Because it's a picture. The foundation is down. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. Nothing more is required. You have everything you need in Christ. It's done. Now then, if Christ is the foundation, we need to recognise that the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is very specific. Who he is. Precisely who he is. As the eternal Son and Word of God who became flesh. The person who is both fully man and fully God, two natures in a single person. This cannot ever be tampered with, because to tamper with it is to make the foundation faulty. And anything that you build on a faulty foundation will not, cannot stand. So you dare not tamper with the foundation. What Jesus Christ came to do, his perfect life, lived under the law of God but without sin 
so that his righteousness would qualify him as a lamb without spot or blemish, so that he can die in the place of sinners as their substitute, so that he can make atonement for sinners. And for his righteousness, as we sang about before, being accounted by God as being yours, so that you can stand on that last day dressed in the righteousness of Christ. His sacrificial death in which he took upon himself the sins and guilt and judgment of sinners, bearing in his own body the wrath of God and paying sin's penalty on behalf of sinners. On the cross, giving up his spirit. As he did that, hanging in this very temple that we're reading about, which at the moment is only at foundation stage, hanging in that very temple was a curtain. And as Christ died, that curtain was ripped from top to bottom. The curtain separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of Covenant was not there, but should have been. But it didn't matter anymore. Because everything that that represented has all been fulfilled in Christ. Because what used to happen is that once a year, the high priest would enter into that holy place behind the curtain... On the top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat and there the blood that had been shed in sacrifice was sprinkled on top of the mercy seat for the atonement of sins. But now the once for all sacrifice that all these others were pointing to, he's died on the cross. The curtain splits from top to bottom. It's not needed anymore. Jesus is the door. And all who enter by him may be reconciled to God. His bodily re resurrection from the dead on the third day, rising again triumphant over sin and death and the grave, destroying the power of Satan, rising in the power of an endless life, as the guarantee that in him you too may be, be dead to your sins and alive in Christ with life everlasting. His ascension back into glory, where now he reigns exalted on high, ruling over all things, calling in his elect, building his church, and awaiting that final day when once all the sheep have been gathered into the fold of God, he will return in judgment. And all who remain in sin and unbelief, he will judge. And punishment will be appointed to them but his people, he'll take them home. These truths, which are the foundation, cannot ever be tampered with. Because to tamper with them is to make the foundation faulty. And anything that you build on a faulty foundation will not, cannot stand. But the foundation has been laid. And in Christ we rejoice. Christ is our sure foundation. And upon this foundation, Christ is building his church. Back in Ezra, they were right to rejoice at the laying of the foundation. How much more should we be rejoicing in the foundation that we have? But those who wept in Ezra's day, 
If their weeping was because of the lack of the Ark of the Covenant and the absence of God's glory, or if it was because they could see that that temple in Ezekiel's vision, well, this is not that glorious temple. How they would rejoice today to see everything being fulfilled in Christ and the living temple that he's building. So, presumably... Those weeping men have no place amongst us today? Or do they? Or do they? Are we yet the church we ought to be? Should that not make us weep? Can we claim to be the finished article? Should that not cause us to weep? Could we claim to be a gathering of God's people in which the glory of God and the image of Christ are perfectly seen? Or that not to make us weep? Is the building work not still in progress? And do we not still struggle with sin? Do we not as living stones have a tendency to wriggle out of place sometimes? Shouldn't that cause us to weep? Do we not have trials and afflictions that cause us to shed tears? Are there not so many still outside of Christ and lost in their sins and without hope over whom we should weep? Does weeping not still have a place amongst the Lord's people? Is there not still a cause for weeping in the midst of our rejoicing? Isn't the Christian life often a life of weeping and rejoicing? It is. Are not Hazel and Heather and Mark weeping and rejoicing? Isn't that the reality for the Christian? Do we not weep and rejoice with them? Will that not be the reality on Thursday? The Lord's people in weeping but rejoicing? Will that not be the sound that people hear? Weeping but rejoicing? How can we rejoice in the midst of suffering and pain and loss? How can we? Because we have the promise of God that the day is coming when all weeping will cease. Hasn't arrived yet, but it's coming. The day is coming when there will only be rejoicing. Don's there already. No weeping where Don is. Only rejoicing. And there is a place of rejoicing where we shall remain as all of his resurrected saints are gathered together as one. And we'll rejoice in Christ forever. The final tear will have been shed and there'll be no more.
Christ is the sure and perfect foundation. And the church that he is building, he will complete. And he will perfect. And in Christ, if you're in Christ, you will live and reign with him forever. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have given us the most sure and certain foundation. We thank and praise you, O Lord, that he it is who continues to build upon that himself, the church. We pray, Lord, that you would enable each one of us to continue to build our lives day by day upon Christ and him alone. And help us as a church, O Lord our God, to be built up as living stones, a living temple to the praise and glory of his name, a place where righteousness dwells and where Christ is known and loved and served and proclaimed. Oh, that we would be, O Lord our God, the church that you would have us be, till he comes and all things then are finally made perfect. To him be glory in the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.